Take your Bibles and look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4. This has been for us not only a comforting study, but a strengthening study because, as you know, Peter is addressing circumstances not unlike our own. He is talking to exiled believers whose culture around them is coming at them. It's been a very, very encouraging and poignant study in what it means to suffer for Christ. And you remember in verse 19 last week that in summing up this section in verses 12 to 19 of chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter said, then those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. When you do what is right and it incurs even greater difficulty, greater hostility, even suffering, even the threat of harm, and you entrust your souls to a faithful creator, you're doing it because that is where our assurance Rests. And as I said last week, there can be no higher place of security in eternity. God has our souls. He has our souls. Our entire eternity, it's enveloped in his love and it is his jealous watch care that holds us fast. We are in his majestic name. And the ultimate ground, the foundation, the ground of our assurance is the unassailable character of God to whom we've entrusted our souls. Think about it. If God desired to safeguard our souls, but he wasn't all powerful, then we wouldn't be secure. Entrusting our souls to a powerless creator would offer no assurance we wouldn't be secure. But if God were all-powerful, but his desire and his will to hold on to us, if that could change or become diminished, then we couldn't have any assurance either, because while he might be all-powerful, his desire could change. I've often thought about that when you think about in eternity. Look, if there's... I mean, we have to have been chosen by God, as Spurgeon said so long ago, because he certainly wouldn't look at us before he saved us and choose us. And there's nothing really after our salvation that would be in us inherent that he would hold on to us, for we still sin. So if he desired, if it was his will to hold on to our souls, but he could change that, there'd be every reason looking at us to change it, even if he were all-powerful. Still no security But if you think about it, if he were all-powerful and his will was unchanging, but there were the slightest flaw in his character, then the promise of covenant faithfulness would be completely null and void. Again, no personal assurance, no eternal security. There'd be no ground for it. And so what Peter is doing here in discussing sort of this sort of this last tag section on what it means to suffer and where we find our security, where our heart is supposed to go. He is demonstrating its ground here. God is almighty. He is omnipotent. He is the supreme power. He is also unchanging, the same today, yesterday, and forever. And he is of flaw, flawless character. He's immutable, cannot change, and he's infinitely perfect. When in Job 34, the counselors were speaking to Job, Elihu spoke about God's preserving work and he said this, if he should take back his spirit to himself and gather to himself his breath, all flesh would perish together. Isn't that amazing? If he decided that he would take back his life-giving spirit from all flesh and there were no, no, no more nefesh, no more living soul, all of us would fall to the ground. 
You are Yahweh, you alone, Nehemiah 9, 6 says. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worship you. You preserve them. That's what Paul preached in in Athens when he came to Mars Hill. In him we live and move and exist. That's right. He's all-powerful. He's all-sustaining. Even Jesus Christ, the God of very God in human flesh, Hebrews 1.3 says he sustains and upholds all things by the word of his own power. So our God is all-powerful. But he's also unchanging, right? We saw last time from Numbers 23 and verse 19, God is not a man that he should look back and regret. In reference to God, he cannot regret his perfect and ultimate will. It is infinitely perfect and he's immutable. But Peter is wanting us also to know and ground ourselves in the reality that not only is he omnipotent and not only is he immutable, but he is righteous and holy and perfect. Therefore, any promise he makes is without flaw. Look for a moment away from 1 Peter to Hebrews chapter 6. Let me remind you of some of the greatest truth ever penned about our God He had just been talking in chapter 6 about people who tasted of the kindness of the Lord, but then no place was for true repentance was found in them, and they fell away. And he says, look, if they've tasted of those things, and, and then they reject Christ, and they end up hardened against him, there's no place for that. But he says in verse 9, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. Now notice verse 10. God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name. These are genuine believers to whom he writes. And he's saying God is not unjust to forget the hard, the, the wonderful heart for hardworking and serving the Lord which you've shown toward his name in ministering and still having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope to the end. Look, God gave you commands. Stay within the commands. He will strengthen you. You are a believer. You'll make it to the end. There's the preserving work of God, as we've seen. Verse 12, stay at it so you won't be sluggish, but that you'll be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, I love this, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's right. There's no higher authority than our God. If he's all-powerful and he's unchanging and he's righteous and holy in his character, then the promise he made in the new covenant cannot be lost. We've seen that. And he said to Abram, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Look at verse 16. Men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation uh, and an end of the dispute. Wherever you have a disagreement, you make an agreement, and you swear an oath to one another that if one of you breaches the agreement, it ends your life. We've seen in this text that dynamic before. Well, in the same way, the writer says, God... Desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have, look at this, strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Beloved, this is what Peter is thinking about and wants us to realize whenever persecution and suffering for the name of Christ gets hotter and hotter. This is what Peter is after, that we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Look at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. 
Because of two things God did. He has a purpose that cannot change. So he's immutable and he made an oath. He spoke an oath. When God speaks a promise, he, and he cannot lie. And it's, it's part of his unchanging will, the ultimate will of God. It is over. That's the highest authority. There is no higher authority. So it cannot be taken away. He gave his word. I love how Psalm 119.89 says it, speaking of this week in preparation for celebrating Doc's life this weekend. Psalm 119, verse 89. You know, Psalm 119, his favorite psalm. Forever, O Yahweh, your word is settled in heaven. The man lived his life believing that truth. Your word is settled. If you said it, I accept it. I believe it. No wonder the author of Hebrews said in verse 19, it's an anchor for the soul. Back to 1 Peter. Those who suffer, verse 19, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls. This entire bedrock truth of Peter's encouragement and admonition to us in this section is centered on that reality. So when Christians are attacked in some way by those who hate the truth and, and hate the Lord Jesus, that is when we again entrust our souls to our faithful creator. We did it at conversion and ongoingly we give it to him and over to his disposal. We trust him. When the Lord is sustaining us through whatever is thrown at us, when we're at our weakest moment, God's power lifts our hearts and our perspective. God's power renews the mind with truth. We are suddenly enabled and strengthened to seek his comfort, and we draw strength from the word of God as it is brought. And Peter says that right there, those moments are when our hearts are mightily assured that we're secure in the face of whatever's coming against our Savior and anyone who's coming against us to try to silence our witness and want to harm us and put an end to us. Those moments we have the assurance of our soul's security. Now you remember last time we saw that Peter opens up this section in verse 12 basically saying, look, you're reviled, but yet you're rejoicing. Notice, do not be surprised, beloved, at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. First thing we notice is that he says, don't take offense. You're reviled, yet rejoicing in this sense. Stop taking offense. Don't be surprised. We saw last time it was just kind of a, a weaker translation of it. Don't don't let it stun you to the point where you're offended as if this isn't um, uh, okay. This isn't supposed to happen. In fact, you remember he says at the end of the verse, as though something strange is happening to you, as though it's meaningless. As though what is happening to Christians has no meaning, has no glory, has no future reward, has nothing. So he puts that clause in the middle, which is for your testing. It comes upon you for your testing. That's right. Persecution tests genuine faith in which the believer gains assurance. Sometimes people battle with assurance. I don't have assurance. Well, we always say, look, Peter is going to say in his second letter, chapter 1, when you are stumbling over whether or not God can hold you or whether your faith is genuine, you go back to the truth to diligently supply new faith and the spirit of God's power is there manifesting itself in your heart and life, which brings assurance. Like, that's the whole point of what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13. If by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I always think about that. I don't want to stay in my own mind very long on whether or not doubts should have a place in my heart and mind. I want to answer my questions with Scripture. And if Scripture tells me, hey, when you're stumbling over whether you know the Lord or whether He can hold you or whether this trouble coming upon you is going to steal your salvation, whenever you're struggling with that assurance, if you want to assure your soul, 
then you go back and diligently supply faith in the promises of God and watch the Spirit manifest himself in lifting you and strengthening you supernaturally. Don't think about that on a human level. Well, this is what I think that would look like, or this is what that should look like, or this is how that should feel to me. Don't do that. Go to his word and do what the apostle Peter says. It's for my testing. Persecution purifies my life. It strengthens my renewed mind. I know from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 that it is rewarded exponentially, right? These trials and tests and burdens and difficulties, these persecutions are storing up for us a a commensurate and far more abundant reward and glory in eternity. This life doesn't compare with that life. So I know that. It also intensifies gospel impact, right? Matthew 5 says that they may see your good works and glorify your fathers in heaven. You're going to see people challenged and their heart convicted. Some come to Christ because you endure the way you do. The Lord holds your faith the way he does. We have this treasure in our earthly bodies so that the power may be of God. We saw that last time. So, persecution is not meaningless, and it tests our genuine faith, as James 1.4 says, and produces endurance. I want to endure. I want to endure. I want to see my faith endure. I want to see it endure under the, the kinds of circumstances that would normally snuff it out. I want to endure then, Lord. So as much as I really don't want to invite a trial or a hostility or an attack against my faith, here's what I know you'll do. And assurance comes. In fact, you remember last time, look at verse 13. Your assurance is strengthened in this sense. To the degree, Peter says, that you share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing. That's right. To, to the degree that suffering comes because you follow Christ, rejoice all the more. With each blow for Christ, rejoice even more and your assurance grows. Yeah, because... The old life, you wouldn't do that. You'd avoid all trouble. Path of least resistance. Get away from it. I, don't, I won't name the name of Christ if it's going to mean hostility. That's what an unbeliever does who's attached themselves to the church, and then they go out from us because they're not really of us. That's what happens when seed falls on rocky ground or hard soil, and something springs up, but then the sun and the cares of life and persecution steals away the, the plant before its roots go deep. It's not a true Christian but true Christians, to the degree that we share the sufferings of Christ, we count it a privilege, as we saw in the book of Acts last time. We already know, and it's amazing if you remember from chapter 2, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. It's, it's all over this letter to share in the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, it's better if God should will it that you should suffer for doing what's right because Christ also died for sins, the just for the unjust. Look, if he died as someone perfect for the unjust, then we, his followers, consider it a privilege to suffer unjustly. We're fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17, if indeed we suffer with him that we may be glorified with him. That's right. If you're willing to follow Christ, you're going to suffer. And as you suffer, you rejoice more. Your assurance grows. Your strength grows. Your endurance grows. How would you like to pray what Paul prayed when he was talking to the Philippians in Philippians 3.10 and he said, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And we say, oh, yeah, that's what I want. I want the power of his resurrection. And then Paul says, and I want to know intimately the fellowship of his sufferings. Ugh, did he have to say that? That's right. It was a privilege. Paul even says that Christ's afflictions, having stopped with his death, there was now the afflictions of Christ that would continue in his people. And Paul wanted to do his share, Colossians 1.24, in adding to the afflictions of Christ because the afflictions against the truth stopped when Christ died. And so Paul becomes now the surrogate recipient of affliction for the Lord. 
Is that how you view yourself? Lord, whatever. I don't invite it, but when it comes, whatever. I, I, I count that a joy. And so Peter says here, keep on rejoicing. With each blow for Christ, rejoice even more. And look at the purpose here in verse 13. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with mega rejoicing. Exaltation. The phrase, at the revelation of his glory, literally reads, at the revealing of his glory. So here's, here's where Peter's going with this. He says that our all-consuming eternal joy will flood our souls when we see the revealing of his glory. It's not, it's not that when you get to heaven, uh, and, and this is true, you're going to receive the inheritance and all that is promised by God. That's true. That's coming to us as joint heirs with Christ. But where the real joy and exaltation comes from when we get there is the revealing of the glory of Christ. We already know. It's true. All the other wonderful things. Romans 8, 28. He works all this out together for good to those that love him. We know that. It is right to pray fervently for his sufficient grace to sustain us. Paul did that in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. That's right. It's right to trust that our suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison, as he, as Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 4. And, and to contemplate the wonders of heaven and think on things above, we're told to do that. Colossians 3, 1. But Peter says that's not the most captivating the most captivating experience that has been promised to us is to look directly into the full glory of the Lord Jesus Christ with eternal eyes. For the first time with eternal eyes, with a pure and holy heart, and be permeated through and through with his love and grace. That experience for us was what Jesus prayed for on earth more fervently than any other petition he made. Just leave your finger in 1 Peter and look at John 17. Look at the end of this prayer that Jesus prays in John 17. It's just absolutely piercing. And when the disciples heard it, I can't imagine they would have been stunned by it. John 17, <clears throat> verse 22, The glory which you've given me, Father, I've given to them. So the installment of the glory is ours by the Spirit, which Peter later will mention. So Jesus is praying the same thing here. I've given that glory to them that they may be one in that glory, just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and loved them even as you love them. That's right. We're being brought out of the world and persecuted by the world and still standing. The world is knowing. There's a group of people here we can't snuff out. Jesus prayed for that. But then this, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am and you would think he means so that they can receive the inheritance I've purchased for them, all of which is true. But actually, here's his purpose, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what the Lord prayed for. That moment when you and I cross the threshold of death, or if he comes and we're alive and we are caught up in the catching up of the church. That moment, Christ prayed that we would see him in his glory. And Peter uses that reality as the motivation, the comfort in the midst of what the earth might be doing to us here. That's what we're to think about. It's staggering, isn't it, to think that Jesus is not satisfied until we see him there. The Lord Jesus is not satisfied 
until his beloved and redeemed people are standing with him at the threshold of eternity and we're all spellbound with astonishment and wonder looking into his face in all the fullness of his majestic glory. And he won't settle for less than fully blazing glory from him into and through our very souls. He won't settle for anything less. Sinclair Ferguson, with reference to this, gave this commentary on it. When he appears, he was referring to Colossians 3, 4, right? When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Sinclair says this, when he appears, isn't that an amazing statement? Then you also will appear with him in glory. The early church fathers used to have a lovely way of putting this that the reformers echoed. Our Lord Jesus Christ considers himself incomplete without us. Sinclair says, isn't that something? We're not worthy of that. In fact, we feel so unworthy of that that there's something in us that refuses to believe it. How could this possibly be true? But because he has become the second man and the last Adam, because he's united us to himself, he now considers himself to be incomplete without us. So that if I can put it this way, he's already said to his father, I'm not going back unless they're coming with me to appear with me in glory. End quote. That is, that is ground, foundation, that is everything. Look for a moment at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is what Paul says to this precious little church. Verse 8. Well, let me get there. Let's back it up to verse 6. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief, that's eternal relief, to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, these are going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And then verse 10, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed... On that day, beloved, when we are seeing him right there, personally, we will be stunned, Paul says. Absolutely captivated, stunned, stopped in the tracks of his glory. Now go back to Peter's epistle and notice that this is the, the ground of our assurance. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. That's right. He's not meaning that there's going to be some Christians who aren't going to rejoice with exultation. He's talking here about getting all the way to the end as a genuine Christian. Preserved by God through your perseverance, no matter the suffering. That's what he's talking about. You're going to be on the right side of the issue. I think about when people pass over the threshold, they are in that moment in the hands of the living God. And for unbelievers, terrifying, soul terrifying, eternally terrifying. For the believer, precious. 
absolutely precious, securing. Peter has literally filled this letter with references to the return and the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his glory. You can go all the way back to chapter 1, right out of the gate in verse 5. He said, this is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the trials that come our way are are to prove our faith so that you may be found, chapter 1, verse 7, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 13? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter just opens the letter because it's on his heart. The day of visitation he'll mention in chapter 2, verse 12. Christ's readiness to judge the living and the dead, chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. In chapter 5, verse 4, he'll say, when the chief shepherd appears, it's on Peter's heart. You get to his second letter and he talks about when the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's describing that moment when you meet Christ. The day of your eternity will have dawned and the morning star of Christ will arise fully in all his glory in your heart. How rich is that? And so he says, while you're here on earth, look for that and hasten the coming of that day. Hasten it. Look for it. This was Peter. Man, when they brought persecution, when these exilic believers, these who are in exile and scattered all over the place, now huddled together and the persecution's beginning, man, they, Peter says, I want them to know where their assurance is grounded. Strengthen it with each blow for Christ. Rejoice even more. And as you rejoice, you start to notice the power of the Spirit of God who possesses you. Listen, Christ is not some distant Savior. God is transcendent, but also very near. He's imminent. God is not some distant God we cannot know. He gave us His presence, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of us, to minister in and among His people. He won't leave us as orphans, Jesus said, and sent His presence to be with us, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, He is upon us. We rest on that. So if somebody's going to take out your physical life and you're sitting there rejoicing, it is under the influence of the presence of Christ and your assurance is through the roof. Notice what Peter says in verse 14. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because... The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a very simple principle that undergirds our courage and strength when you're insulted and threatened because of Christ. It gets unnerving, doesn't it? It's all over the internet. It's all over the videos. It comes out on your phone. It's just violent things happening all over the place and people screaming and people going into churches and doing things and there's just lawlessness that's starting to rise up and we can hardly believe it's happening without a police presence there and clearly in this new generation there's no fear of God before their eyes there's no reverence no respect no fear of the law this is exactly what Paul told Timothy when the when the latter days come people are going to be disobedient to parents brutal He uses a term there, brutal. We're seeing it. You can hardly believe it's happening. And you start to get unnerved. Oh my goodness, what if that comes to our town? What if that comes to to our gated neighborhood? What if we don't have a gate? What if that comes down my street? Peter says, listen, if you're insulted, threatened, or harmed for the gospel, you are fulfilled and blessed at the deepest soul level. Why? Because you know when you suffer like that, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
consider yourself makarios. You know, it's what Jesus preached in Matthew 5. Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. That's the term. Fortunate, happy, privileged, a privileged recipient of divine favor. That's how you're blessed. He had already said it in chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Doers of the word aren't deluded. How would you like to know that you're not deceived? Well, then when the word of God is spoken and you go do it by the power of the spirit, you know now you're blessed. You're not deceived. When people tell me they don't know if they're saved and they struggle with assurance, they don't see any fruit. I, I've told you before, I just say, really, you don't see any fruit. What are you doing in my office asking about it for then? Why, why are you doing that? Can, can that not be the work of the Spirit drawing you to have assurance? And now suddenly I'm going to open the Word of God to you and you're not throwing things at me. You're asking for answers. What do you mean there's no fruit? Oh, you have sin in your life. Of course. The Bible has something to say about that too and already admits that we will sin. But here's what we can do about it. We run to Christ. Do you want to run to Christ? Yes. Unbelievers don't want to run to Christ. Why are you throwing off the joy of seeing the manifestation of the Spirit in your life. Notice verse 14, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's the construction of this peculiar phrase that Peter uses. It's, and without getting into the details of it, it's a difficult phrase to translate. And I won't bog you down with the grammatical details, but, but after studying the details and after looking at the way Peter specifically sets these terms as, uh, uh, he sets them in place as separate descriptions of the Spirit, although commentators disagree. But if you take the way he's specifically set these two things, the Spirit of glory and the and the Spirit of God. He set them as actual terms he wants to use because he's put the article on both of them. The Spirit of glory, the Spirit of God. The text emphasizes that. If you take that and you load it into this context, which is, is a context speaking about our personal assurance when we're suffering for loving Christ. If you take all that in hand, it seems best to understand Peter as saying that as the culture insults us, as it harasses and threatens us, and as we still love Christ and desire to honor him, then our hearts should be filled with assurance because in the midst of anti-God chaos, we possess the genuine glory given by the Spirit. We're governed by him. We're watched over by him. We're specifically ministered to by him, indwelt by him, loved by him, and held fast by him. The power then to stand and swallow up our fear of persecution is by him. There's your assurance. I just think about that. I think there's no more highly favored experience in the believer's life. The thing we dread the most, the thing that would snuff out the smoldering wick, it doesn't. It doesn't. We want to threaten our lives we are reviled yet rejoicing. We don't take offense. We strengthen our assurance. And as we experience hostility, we, we counter every blow for Christ with more rejoicing. With each assault, we rest in the fact that we're possessed by the Spirit. So then Peter has to say something about what people sometimes call persecution. So we come to that second point, if you're keeping an outline, suffering yet sanctified. Suffering yet sanctified. So we're reviled yet rejoicing, and we're suffering yet sanctified. Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if, as a Christian, if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name, being a Christian. The name that we take on as Christians, and they were first called Christians at Antioch, we follow Christ. We're a Christ follower. We're, we're blessed, and we're to glorify God in that if we suffer 
as a Christian. So Peter says, first of all, I don't want you to suffer shamefully. Don't suffer shamefully. Verse 15, by no means. The, the legacy translation says, make sure that none of you suffers because of these things he mentions, all of which would just put in a category of sinful conduct. So let's, let's just think of it this way. If we're going to suffer for Christ, then let it be because of Christ and not for anything unworthy. If we're going to suffer for Christ, then let it actually be because of Christ and not for anything unworthy. So he says, don't suffer as a murderer. <laughs> Why is he putting that here? Sometimes these things strike you because we're like, we're not going to murder anybody. Well, he's putting it in here because he's warning Christians not to call it persecution if when the world comes against professing believers, you go into some revenge mode and you end up harming or killing someone. You go into vengeance mode. You circle the wagons. You're going to take down anybody who dares to threaten you because of Christ. You're going to get hauled into court for a crime of passion, Peter says. And when you do that, don't fly the flag of persecution for Christ when you've dishonored him. You've usurped his vengeance. Vengeance is his. And we saw that in this letter in chapter 3. Do not return insult for insult or evil for evil. If you go into revenge mode and you end up going into lawlessness, you, you break the law, you take somebody's life, not just the law of God, but civil courts, don't, don't call it persecution. And he knows that sometimes people are going to call it persecution but it isn't if you've become sinfully fearful under affliction and you began to take what doesn't belong to you because you're trying to secure your life here on earth. You're, you're going behind the scenes and you're greedy and stealing. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's material goods. Maybe you're battening down the hatches. And because you are afraid, you start to try to take care of yourself and you're caught and accused of being a thief. Or, or non-Christians can see what you're doing and they see that you're no different. You're, you're manipulative. You're a thief. That conduct is used by the world to accuse you. Peter says, if that happens to you, don't sit there and say you're being persecuted by the world. To, so don't do that. Don't call that persecution. It's not. And he throws in the catch-all term for any evil behavior, or in this case, anything that you might do to justify lawlessness evildoer. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't live as one who uses the persecution and the hatred of the world to become bitter and hateful and start justifying your own lawlessness. The world then can hold you accountable for that. Well, then you can't go to the church and say, help me, I'm being persecuted. No, you, you actually are not suffering as a Christian. You're, you're not to do that, Peter says. It's interesting then he sets the, the fourth term off from the others in the original language. He kind of sets it off a little bit and says, or as a, and the translation says, troublesome meddler. And literally the original construction sets it off by itself. And um, normally when something like that happens, we want to find out how is this author using it? We build in for you language students, a, a semantic range. We want to look at how this author used it, if he used it elsewhere, if other authors used it in a similar context and then in different contexts. Well, you can't do that with this term because as for finding this term anywhere else in the New Testament, it's not there. As far as we know of the language at the time, there's no record of the term being used anywhere that we can see or find. It's like Peter coined this. It's like he took two words and mashed them together into a description of someone who troubles other people's lives by trying to dominate them and their affairs without being invited. That's the two terms that he uses, to, to oversee someone's affairs, but, but in a dominant, controlling way that, that is sinful, sinful control, sinful dominance. So here's the context. Peter's obviously warning Christians not to behave toward unbelievers in a way that dishonors the name we proclaim. He's said that throughout the letter. He's just mentioned murder and thievery and anything that would be lawless 
for which we might suffer the consequences. But now Peter includes this word, and he seems to have, have thought about it for just this moment, and he warns us not to go around trying to dominate and control the lives and affairs of other people. So you can, you can imagine what the temptation would have been. It's, it's the temptation during times of persecution to want to gather a following to give a show of force to come against the hostility, build the momentum of a movement, fight against the opposition, control people, dominate them, tell them they must do this, burden their conscience because they have to do these things. I mean, we've even seen some of that temptation in evangelicalism as the culture is is in its demise and as government authorities and people like that are wicked and more and more so, we've seen people in the name of Christ go forward and try to burden other people's consciences with things that are not explicit in Scripture. That's, that's part of this term. Stop doing that, he says. We might be tempted to rail at other Christians for not responding to the culture the way we think they should we're not to do that, especially if it's according to our passions and preferences. Sometimes people want to move into other people's lives, try to control their choices, control their daily routines, control their personal lives just so we can preserve ourselves instead of trusting God. I believe this is be the best understanding of what Peter's warning of here. And none of these named sins you could call persecution. They're not remotely related to suffering for Christ. If you end up isolated from others because you're constantly trying to use them for your own ends, you're not being persecuted for your faith. You're reaping what you've sown. That's Peter's point. And if you, if you end up in the world's courts because you retaliated or you became a thief or you began to defy the laws of the land and it's not because of obedience to God, I must obey God rather than men. No, it's because of a growing hostility toward persecutors and then you get in trouble for it. Don't cry out to the brethren that you're suffering for Christ. It's not right, Peter says. So he says, don't suffer shamefully, but notice, suffer honorably. If anyone suffers as a Christian, is not to be ashamed. You're to suffer for a proven testimony of the things of Scripture. Suffering honorably means you're on the right side. Don't be ashamed, you're on the right side. It doesn't matter what they do to you. When we meet God, we're on the right side. In fact, he's about to say, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's right. Persecution sanctifies. It cleanses the church. It gets rid of the riffraff. It gets rid of the people that name the name of Christ that aren't true believers. The more hot and opposing the persecution becomes, the clearer the line in the sand between true and false believers. Judgment begins with the household of God in that way. God uses this to cleanse his people. And then Peter says it this way, man, if judgment begins with the household of God, so you better be careful why you suffer, the reasons for which you suffer, if that's the case, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Those who say they're Christians, but they suffer as evildoers. What is going to be the outcome for them who once professed Christ, but now they're, they're going away, they're, they're leaving because persecution is too tough, and they're in their heart, they don't follow Christ, they don't want to suffer honorably. As a pattern, they leave the faith. What will it be like for them? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? You suffer honorably for a proven testimony because persecution sanctifies. Because suffering honorably means you're on the right side. Don't be ashamed of it. Because those who persecute Christians face the unthinkable. They face crossing that threshold and becoming the victim in the hands of an angry God. They will be eternally lost and punished But not the Christian. 
as Dean Ben Hebert said, as proof of their membership in his family and a pledge of their escape from the end of those whom the last judgment shall find disobedient to the gospel. That's right. This is proof of our membership into the family. These are your, this is your path. This is proof of it. Peter says, therefore, those who suffer like that, according to the will of God, in doing so, they shall be entrusting their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. That's why you do what is right. Anytime someone is suffering persecution and you see them doing what is right, you tell them, I've just seen you entrust your soul to the faithful creator. I've just seen it. I've just witnessed it in your words to that unbelieving family that's isolated you and rejected you, in your words to that person uh, at work who's figured out a way to undermine you and maybe get you fired and threatened. Those beloved believers who are already under physical torment and physical harm, persecuted for their faith, they, by testimony, are entrusting their souls to a faithful creator. We see that because they rejoice in the midst of it and they suffer like a Christian. Peter says, there is a powerful assurance to your soul. Amen? So as it comes, we just have to ground ourselves here. It's interesting that Peter will now talk to the leaders of the church in chapter 5. Uh, we don't, we'll get to it next time. But he says, I'm a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter knew Jesus had said, one day they're going to tie you up, Peter, and take you where you don't want to go, and you're going to be martyred for my name's sake. So when he's writing this, he hasn't yet been martyred, but he's writing it, and he's saying, I'm a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I'm doing my share to suffer for Christ. And I've even been told what the end's going to be. You and I haven't had that. Peter was told, you're going to be martyred. Wow. And tradition says, though we don't, know the specific details, says all the way back to the early centuries that they were going to crucify him like his Lord, but he felt unworthy, so he has to be crucified upside down, so tradition says. And so he says, I'm also a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. Wow. And he wants us to know that. No matter what comes, beloved, suffer like a Christian, and it'll assure your soul. Let's bow together. Our Heavenly Father, we don't have what it takes within ourselves to suffer like this, but you, you know the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Thank you for giving us your presence, your spirit, the comforter, another one of the same as it was for the disciples when you walked with them. And your Holy Spirit as our guide and protector and guard and intercessor. And you as our Lord and Master interceding for us before the throne of grace. And you even know what will be the last day of our life. You know how it will come. So if it were to involve some measure of hostility to the gospel, then it has been marked out for us and you will sustain our faith and we will enter into your glory. How rich a privilege is this. Lord, give us your grace and strength in the time of need. Give us answers from your truth when we need them. And may we suffer according to your will like a Christian and not be ashamed. And we ask this in your strength and power and for your name alone. Amen.